Ephesians chapter 1. Um, we're wrapping up today this series on living on mission. And so for the last couple of weeks, it's been my privilege, and hopefully yours as well, to hear from two different people who are deeply not just gifted, but invested in living life on mission. I've learned a lot from them, and I hope you have as well. Alex, two weeks ago, uh, talked to us about the heart of, of, of parties, of connection, or parties. You know, they can connect and have a party. Uh, and Alex and Hannah have oriented their lives around being on mission. And that idea of uh, parties is really a, 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 a placeholder for any kind of a social gathering that allows us to really get to know people. An emphasis on relationship, not just on message. One of those things that Alex said that really has stuck with me is that people will first remember how you made them feel before they remember what you said. And I just think, how many times in my life have I been so concerned about getting a message across that I've failed to make somebody feel like they're worthwhile to, to, um, to, to be accepted and loved instead I'm just trying to get a message in? And Alex really, I thought, hit that really well to, to create an environment where people can build a relationship and listen. And then Pastor Jonas last week, another, Jonas is deeply invested in this. He's doing, and I'm going to tell you a story a little bit later about that, but Jonas uh, invited us into incarnational mission, uh, basically stepping in as a part of the community all around us as we engage the world around us. And that idea of incarnational mission, one of the things that really hit me with Jonas is that, that he was reminding us this really is good news. This, this message that we have, it's good and it's exciting, and we should be ready to tell people about it, which means when people know that we're spiritual people, we shouldn't be afraid of doing spiritual things. Like, if somebody knows that you're a follower of Jesus, and they have a serious issue, and you don't say, can I pray for you, there's going to be a problem with that, right? Like, this thing that you deeply believe, you don't care enough about them to be able to share. So there's this opportunity for us to be spiritual people in front of people who know that we're spiritual. That's, that seems pretty simple, but it really hit me as Jonas talked about it. He also laid out that acronym BLESS. We've been looking at that. If you follow our daily devotional podcast, we've been hitting those over the course of the week. I just think it's such a helpful framework. So BLESS, if you just picture that word, begin with prayer, that we would uh, pray first for people and listen to God's heart for people. Listen to them, ask them questions. Uh, it's that not talking first, but listening to where people are and, and hearing them. Eat with people. I know in COVID, eating with people feels a little bit odd, but um, it's this opportunity, whether uh, it's actually eating or uh, having coffee or just sitting with masks on out at the park. The CDC says, by the way, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to do that. That's a public uh, service announcement. Um, you can, uh, whatever. Um, so you, you, can, uh, you can engage with people in some kind of a social setting that allows deeper relationships. And then serve, uh, serve them, but especially allow them to serve you. Uh, we're typically good at serving others, but we tend to not be as good at being served. And it's a great opportunity with people who we're loving and uh, getting connected to, to uh, allow the, the playing field to be kind of stabilized, where they recognize we're people like their people, and we're in need just like they're in need, and it invites them into our lives. And so, great opportunity to be served as well as to serve. And then finally, to share your story, that in little snippets, in little, you know, 30-second, uh, two-minute 
little notes you can just say, this is the way that Jesus has been working. This is part of the way that my journey has gone. Can I just tell you about what it looked like when I encountered Jesus? And as we share our story, we have opportunity to walk with people. It's really, really simple, but it's, uh, I thought, a really, really helpful framework. And so my goal today is, frankly, not to mess it up. That's what I'm, that's what I'm shooting for. Um, they've done a great job of kind of laying it out, and I would like to not mess it up. So that's what we're going to dive into in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And as you get there, I, I want to tell you about a survey I saw this week, a fascinating statistic. So back in 2016, there was a survey done of people between the ages of 17 and 30 in the UK. So this is uh, people who are in their late teens— through their 20s, getting ready to step into the world, already having stepped into the world. This broad survey was done, and one of the things that came out was 63% of people between the ages of 17 and 30, 63% said they were bored with life. In their 20s, in their late teens, they said, eh, it's just kind of boring. Now, that's one thing. 2019, just a couple years after that, same survey was done, same age range, 17 to 30, 89% of people said they were bored with life. 90% of people, nine out of every 10 people are saying I'm bored with life. Now, if you ask those same people, I can just about guarantee you they would not say they didn't have anything to do. Bored with life does not mean their schedule's not full, right? Like if you talk to those people, probably like if I talk to any of you, how you doing? The answer would be like it is for many of us. Oh, good, but man, busy right? Busy. Everything's busy. Uh, Having a full schedule does not mean you're not bored. Bored with life typically means that what you're doing doesn't have any meaning, doesn't have any purpose. There's this uh, lack of purpose that plagues us. And deep inside, there's this sense of like, am I missing something? Like, I, I think about that sometimes. I'm 45 years old. Did I like, am I doing this life thing right? Like, am I doing the stuff I'm supposed to be doing. There's a guy named William Irvin who wrote a book called The Guide to the Good Life, and he coined this term, misliving. And I think it's a really interesting term. Listen to what he says. There's a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. I don't know about you, but that hits me. Like, is, is there this possibility that I'm pursuing the wrong thing? I, I think that in a cultural sense is part of that malaise that says life's boring, doesn't have purpose. I'm just not sure. Now compare and contrast that to Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus comes to his disciples, remember some of whom are doubting him still, and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded, and surely I will be with you always until the end of the age. If you actually believe that, you cannot be bored. It's impossible to hold those two things together. Jesus just said, all of the power in the universe has been given to me. 
And so now I'm transferring all of that power in the universe to you and I'm giving you a job. So go out and make disciples. I will be with you always. Wherever you go, whatever you do, there isn't a place that you can go that I'm not going to go with you. I'm with you to the end of the age. We are always sent out, empowered by the Spirit and sent out. That's the heart of what Paul's getting at. At the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has laid out this beautiful declaration about who we are in Christ, our identity. And then transitioning from our identity, he begins to pray for the Ephesian Christians. And at the end of that prayer, he's going to make a statement. And that statement dives into the heart of what it means to be sent ones. Listen to uh, verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this, And he, this is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that's Jesus the Son, and gave him as head over all things to the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let me read that for you again. The Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, it may be tough for you to get your head around. I had to read it 10 or 12 times to get my head around what it is that Paul's saying. But the heart of what he's telling us is that our life does have purpose. And so as we dive in, let's pray and invite Jesus to speak into our reality this morning. Jesus, would you meet us where we are? I confess that there are times I feel that boredom that is just, I know, not true within the commission that you've given to me. And I know my brothers and sisters come in lots of different ways, lots of different places. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, meet us where we are and that you would guide us, you would lead us, you would speak to us. As we dig into your word, Jesus, would you speak in a clear way? Would you allow my words that come from my flesh to fall to the ground and be forgotten? But your words remain with us. Would you allow your truth to find fertile soil in our hearts? May it grow deep roots and sprout up and bear great fruit. And so Jesus, would you speak to us, guide us, help us to hear from you? It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. The heart of what Paul's talking about is the nature of power. He's talking about what it means that God has power, that that power has been given to Jesus, and ultimately that power has been transferred to us. And so we're going to look at the location of power, the transfer of power, and then we're going to really dig into the result of that power. So the location of power, transfer of power, and then the result of the power. So listen, in verse 20, 22, it says, the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. All things under Jesus' feet. So what, what's happening here is Paul says that God the Father has all of the power and all of that power has been handed to Jesus. So the power is all centered in the Godhead. Psalm 115.3 says that God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is in charge. 
We need to get out of this mindset that is uh, kind of the, the old Hollywood Western, you know, where the, the guy in the black hat rides in on the horse one direction and the guy in the white hat rides in on the horse in the other direction. And you're kind of waiting to see, like, who's going to win? Who's gonna, is it going to be good or is it going to be evil? What, what's what's going to happen? The, the universe is not like that. God has all of the power. He is completely in charge of everything in every place at all times. We're not going to get into all of the complications that sovereignty brings, but Jesus, God, is fully sovereign over all things, which means there's no competition. It's not like there's this battle that's going on and we're not sure who's going to win. You see it when, when Jesus shows up and he encounters a demon, you, you always see it. The demons like come out and they're like, like come on, Jesus, right? No, they don't do that. They're whimpering, right? Like the demons manifest and they're like, please, 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 don't send us, send us over here. Please do the, don't hurt us, right? Like they're afraid because they know all the power is located in God himself. And so when Jesus shows up, it's a no contest kind of thing. And so Jesus standing on the mountain says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All the power is now located here. The entire universe of power is here with me. And that's very different than if I say that, right? So if I got up this morning and I come in and I'm like, hey guys, I spent some time with God this morning and he told me all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here's what I want you to do. I shouldn't joke about that because there are pastors that actually do that. It's kind of freaky. So of course you would not listen to that, right? You would say like, yeah, okay, whatever. I know you, cut it out. But remember, the disciples are standing around and Jesus is here and they watched Jesus die on the cross. They watched his body taken off of the cross. They watched him wrapped up and put into a tomb. They watched the big stone rolled in front of it. And then a couple days later, the stone blows up or whatever happens, moves away, and Jesus shows up and starts talking to people. And then he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. They had to be like, yeah, <laughs> right? Like, we never saw anybody do that before. Like, that, there's not a whole lot more authority than coming back to life. Like, that's pretty, that's, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Like, you win, right? So he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And they're saying, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. And what Paul's saying is that this Jesus is not simply this Galilean carpenter. Yes, he is incarnate as the Galilean carpenter, but he is now also the cosmic Christ. The Christ that is everywhere in every way at all times. He says to his disciples, I will be with you all always, right? There's this, there's this sending out, this, um, this uh, complexity to the presence of God because the power is now fully in him. Psalm 139 says that, uh, the, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? If I go all the way up to the heavens, you're there. If I go all the way to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I, anywhere I go, I turn around and you're like right there with me, which is both like incredibly comforting and completely terrifying at the same time, right? It's like, like every, he's everywhere. Like you can't get away because he's there. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So all the power is in him. But then Paul says that that power is not just given to Jesus, but then he says he's put all things under his feet and he's given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. 
So now he says that power that was given to Jesus, kind of transferred in the Godhead, is now transferred to you and I as the church. Luke, in his final retelling of Jesus' uh, commission to the disciples right before he ascended to heaven, in Acts chapter 1, he, he says this, power will come, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So power comes, this transfer of power happens, and that precedes the, the witnessing, the commissioning, the act that they're called to do. You get the power, and then you go to be the witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's this transfer that's happening where, where Jesus' power is coming to us for a specific purpose. You and I are sent out to all of these different places in order to embody his spirit, his, his goodness, his love, his grace in all of these different places. Now you may say, I, I like Jesus, but I'm not for that. <laughs> like I didn't ask to be sent. I'm, I'm not so sure I'm ready, right? There's probably some of you who are like, yeah, that's not really my personality. Like, I'm a little, I don't want to go talk to a bunch of people. Like, it's not really, I, I got some stuff to work through first before I get sent. Like, I, I got I to gotta work through some stuff. What, what do you do with that? Well, as you might expect, my friend Dallas Willard has some things to say about that. Love Dallas Willard, right? Uh, Listen to what he says. Um, Someone will say, can I not be saved, that is, get into heaven when I die, without any of this? Perhaps you can, Willard says. God's goodness is so great, I'm sure that he will let you in if he can find any basis at all to do so. But you might wish to think about what your life amounts to before you die about what kind of person you're becoming, about whether you really would be comfortable for eternity, next one, in the presence of one whose company you have not found especially desirable for the few hours and days of your earthly existence. He is, after all, one who says to you now, follow me. And I would add parenthetically, go and make disciples. Willard's point is this, that heaven, what we long for, is at least, this is not a theology of heaven, we don't have time to dig into all of that, but at the very least, lowest common denominator, I think we can agree, heaven is a place where God's in charge, right? And so if our desire on earth is not to do what God has called us to do, at the very least, heaven will be a bit uncomfortable when we have that conversation, right? Like, but I told you to do this one thing. Yeah, but I was gonna get to it, but I had to, like, I was gonna, right? There's this invitation to follow in, in different ways, as different as all of us, but this invitation to go, to, to be empowered and sent into all the world in order, order to make disciples. Um, so then Paul starts to unpack the results of what happens. As that power transfers from the Father to the Son and then from the Son to the church through the Spirit, what unfolds? Well, his phrase is simply this, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? The fullness of him who fills all and in all. I think what Paul's trying to get at is that there's a distinction for Jesus between incarnational mission and that term that I made up on Easter Sunday, resurrectional mission. Um, The the idea that, that mission for Jesus started out incarnational, took on flesh, came to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. 
But now Jesus says to his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as the Spirit comes and empowers us, now we are incarnational in, in a place and time, but the church is the fullness of him who's filling all in all. Let's say it a different way. The church is filling every nook and cranny in the world around us. We're sent out in order to fill every spot in the world, that we would be those who are uh, following after him. Now, that can feel kind of overwhelming at first, right? But um, it's all of us. It's not you. You individually don't have to fill every single spot. But we, the church, the broad church, begins to fill every single nook and cranny in the world. Paul, in Acts chapter 17, makes this statement. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. This is one of my favorite passages because what it's saying is God has designed you and I to be in the place that we are at the time that we are in front of the people we're in front of because like, almost like this, this network of, of plants or weeds, we're kind of, we just keep multiplying out all around the world and all of those people who are seeking after God, as they reach out and try to find him, they find you, they find me, wherever they are in the places that you would expect and the places that you wouldn't expect and the places of light and the places of darkness. They reach out and find the church because the people of God are going everywhere because God goes with us everywhere. Like you get this idea that, that the one who conquered death, who all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, there's no place that you can go that he's afraid of, right? There's no place that you go and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa back up, I'm not sure I got that, Right? Like he's, he's got you everywhere. And so he's saying that we become the people who he has placed in every place and time all over for all eternity so that people as they reach out to try to find God would find us as his representatives. We would begin to be those people. So church is a sending place, not a destination. This is where we start and go from not where we end. The church has always struggled with this. From before the time of Jesus, and certainly for the last 2,000 years, the church has always wanted there to be this unique relationship between the gathered people of God and the presence of God. Like, even as I say it, there's part of me that says, yet yeah, God meets us in a special way here, in a way that's different than when we're out there. But is that really true? Well, the short answer is no. Like right now, yes, we gather together and God meets us in his manifest presence in beautiful ways. That's, that's great. But like Jeff's right here encountering the power of Jesus and then Jeff gets up and leave and say there's, a, I don't know, 125 of us in here. Does 125th of God go with Jeff as he goes? No, the fullness of God goes with Jeff as he goes, Right? As Bill leaves, the fullness of God goes with Bill. As Lucinda leaves, the fullness of God goes with Lucinda. Which means everywhere we go, the same presence of God that's here as we're gathered is with us as we go out. But the church has always wrestled with it. So like in, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul starts to um, 
dissect this argument about meat being sacrificed to idols. Now, I know a lot of you worry about that. I get questions every week about it. People are really concerned about their meat that was sacrificed to idols, but calm down. It's going it's to be okay. What's going on with this? Con- like in Romans, he talks about it. In Corinthians, he talks about it. Like what, what's happening? I, Michael Frost has explained it in a way that I find really, really helpful. Let me give a crack at it. In, in Corinth, there would be all of these guilds and organizations, um, every vocation would have a guild, and they would meet together, and, and they would interact with one another, kind of networking, so to speak. Um, and, and as they'd, so like say, say you were a potter in Corinth, there'd be a potter's guild, and you would come together, and you would, well, I was going to say do pot, but that would not be right. Um, you would, you would, I, Whatever you do, make stuff, whatever. And so there'd be this networking about like, you know, how does the pot not crack and all of, all of the stuff that they would talk about. But before they do any of that, the head of the pottery guild would take a goat and sacrifice the goat to the god of pottery in order that there would be a blessing on their potting stuff that they would be doing, right? And, and then they would go on with their meeting and there'd be a dead goat right there. So what do you do with the dead goat? Well, the head of the guild would take the dead goat and take it over to the butcher, and the butcher would dress it and put it in the meat case, unrefrigerated, a little weird, and put it in the meat case alongside of the goat that just came out of the field. So the question the church has for Paul is, can we eat that stuff? Like that, that goat that was offered to the idol, the, the god of pottery, can we eat that? Or do we get little goat demons if we eat that? Like what, what happens if we eat that? And so Paul would, like, over and over again, steadfastly refuse to forbid it. Like, he just again and again would say, no, it's okay, it's okay. One, because there weren't little goat demons, so he was, like, you know, trying to help them understand what was really happening in the spiritual realm. But also because, imagine, first century Middle Eastern culture. You don't know when you show up at the butcher shop where that goat's from. So you ask the butcher, where's the goat from? And he would say, well, I got it from the Potter's Guild because they offered it to the idol, the god of pottery, and then brought it here. So you, if you're a Christian, you might say, well, I don't want that one. Get me the one that was in the field. But if you say you went to your friend's house for dinner and they serve you food, Middle Eastern hospitality, they're bringing all this out, and in the center of the table is the goat, and you say to your host, hey, um." I'm a follower of Jesus. Could you tell me where that goat's from? Oh, yeah, I got it from the butcher. He got it from the guy uh, from the Potter's Guild from the night before. Oh, I'll have the salad, right? Like, you can't do that. Like, it doesn't work. Like, Middle Eastern hospitality is an honor-shame culture. And if, if you were to do that, you would literally, literally, you would rather never go talk to your friend than have to do that. It was the height of rudeness. It would be the worst thing you could possibly do. And so what would happen, just imagine it playing out. If, if, you, if you couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols because there were so many of that, there's so much of that going on, you literally, you, you couldn't go anywhere. So you'd have to have like little Christian goat farms. And then you'd have like this Christian meat market. And then you'd start to have these like Christian dinner parties with only Christians eating only meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols. And as you start doing that, then all of a sudden you start to have this like Christian social club going on. You start to have like Christian men's meetings and Christian women's meetings. And you start to have Christian sports clubs. And I I don't know if you could imagine something like that, right? Right? Do Do you see how crazy it is? Like this is, Paul was saying, don't do that. 
Because when, when the church believes that the darkness that's out there is stronger than the light of Christ, we will only ever surround ourselves with light. And the church becomes this insulated subculture. We stop being out filling all in all, and instead we, we start to insulate ourselves with safe people. So practically, what's this look like? Let me give you just a couple points. The first one is this. People must encounter Jesus somewhere other than church. Now, this is a great place to encounter Jesus. I'm thrilled you're here. It's good. And look, invite your friends because if they come, I believe you all, the people of God, are the greatest apologetic for Jesus in the world. So it's wonderful. But you need to hear this. There is a percentage, a growing percentage of people who will never come here, no matter what you tell them, no matter what you promise them. It doesn't matter what lunch you promise them afterwards. They're not coming. Like, they're just not coming through the door. And that number is getting higher and higher and higher all the time. And if this is the only place you can encounter Jesus, there's a big number of people who will never encounter Jesus. You and I have to give people an opportunity to encounter Jesus in their place, not in our place. We need to encounter Jesus in places other than just church. We also need to be people who are willing to reach people who don't have it all together. They're not acceptable. Broken people are the people who need Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but way back in the day, you used to be broken sometimes, or this morning, right? Like, do you get, the church people do this weird thing. Like, if you find, you wake up in the morning, and you know what you did last night, you know what you felt like this morning. You feel the depression. You feel the anxiety. You feel the darkness. Whatever the thing is, you feel it. And church people have one of two responses. One response is get a shower, dress a little bit nicer, and come and pretend. You all look great this morning, by the way. You look like you've, you've really put yourself together. Right? You, just, you, you dress up and you look good. Or you say it's too much. I'm staying home. Because I real, I'm broken. I just can't go to church which is completely convoluted, of course, but it's what we think. And so then what happens? Broken people heard, wow, I heard that church is a place where broken people gather together to be made whole. And they walk in the door and they're like, there ain't no broken people here. Like, what? where'd they all go? Well, half of them are pretending, the other half are at home. <laughs> we need to be people who are willing to be ourselves broken and reach out to broken people. And we have to stop being willing to only go to safe spaces. Your turf is not the only turf where someone can encounter Jesus. We need to go to their turf. We need to go into every... If we really believe that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus and he's going with you always to the end of the age, everywhere you go, then we should not back away from going into places that seem unsafe. Now, we need to be smart. Like, if you're an alcoholic, you shouldn't be going to witness at the bar by yourself. That's a bad idea. If you're a porn addict, you shouldn't be going to the strip club to try to, like, get people to follow Jesus. But somebody should be in the bar, and somebody should be outside the strip club, ready to love people. And you should be going in, as Jesus sent out, in twos and threes and, and with accountability and all of that stuff, but into people's territory, not just saying, hey, come here. Holiness is over here. Come on. We're here. Come on over. We need to be willing to go into unsafe places with wisdom, with grace, 
recognizing the power of God. So two stories that maybe will help. Uh, One from here and one that I think is a story maybe some of you have heard before, but I think a powerful example of this. The, the story from here, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag about Pastor Jonas for a minute because, as I said, he was preaching in this series not just because it was time for him to preach, but because he, he gets this. He lives this. Um, so Jonas was in a meeting um, of people, g- gathering of people, and um, not everybody in there was a follower of Jesus, and they're kind of getting to know one another. And I don't know, it, Jonas tries to look nice for Sunday mornings. I mean, he still wears like flip-flops and a t-shirt, but that's a nice t-shirt, whatever. Um, but during the week, he doesn't, he, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And he has a shirt, some of you have seen the shirt, uh, it says, not today, Satan, you know that shirt? And Jonas like wears it, not today, Satan. So he gets to this meeting, and there's this guy that shows up, and his shirt says, not today, Jesus. And Jonas is like, now, I don't, I don't know about you, but if I came up to somebody who didn't look like I expected him to look and didn't act like I expected him to act and he was wearing a shirt that said, not today, Jesus, I'd be like, over here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm gone. You know what Jonas does? I got to know his story. Like, let's talk, right? So he, he starts to engage this guy and starts to talk with him. And it turns out this guy is a Luciferian. So a a Luciferian, I'm going to probably butcher this, but this is the way I understand it. It's kind of like a a highbrow Satanist. Like it's not like a a run-of-the-mill kind of generic Satanist or just kind of like opposed to God stuff. But Luciferians are like followers of Lucifer that are very, very specific, kind of more kind of highbrow in their Satanism. I don't know about you, but after Not Today Jesus, and then he says, I'm a Luciferian, by then I'm out for sure. I'm done, right? And Jonas is like, let's have lunch. Like, I'd like to hear about that. And he just begins this conversation. Why? Because Jonas knows that God, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth through Jesus, goes with him to every place at every time. And so this is not a battle. This is not unsafe for him. He knows that there is no, like, crazy, like, like invisible spiritual thing going on up here, and he's not sure who's going to win. He knows who won. And so he can go and sit across from this guy and say, tell me about that. And over the course of time, begins to be able to show him the love and the grace of Jesus. Those lunches continue. He just added some more people. I don't even know their background. It could be real sketchy, but it's going to be interesting, right? Like, but that's what it means to take Jesus into every place. The other story is from uh, a guy named Tony Campolo. Some of you know Tony Campolo. Uh, some of you don't like his politics or his theology. I'm not saying his politics or theology are good, so don't email me. I don't want to know about it. Um, but this is a story of Tony who uh, is expressing the kingdom in a place where he just happened to be. So listen to the story. Uh, Tony was in another time zone and he couldn't sleep. So well after midnight, he wandered down to the donut shop where it turned out Local hookers also came at the end of the night of turning tricks. There, he overheard a conversation between two of them. One of them named Agnes said, you know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend snapped back. So what do you want from me? A birthday party, huh? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday to you? The first woman replied, come on, why do you have to be so mean? Why do you have to put me down? I'm just saying it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should I have a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? As the two women left, Tony got an idea. He asked the shop owner if Agnes came in every night, and when he replied in the affirmative, Tony invited him into a surprise party conspiracy. 
The shop owner's wife even got involved. Together they arranged for a cake, candles, typical party decorations for Agnes, who was to Tony a complete stranger. The next night when she came in, they all shouted, surprise! And Agnes couldn't believe her eyes. The donut shop patrons all sang, and she began to cry so hard she could barely blow out the candles. When the time came to cut the cake, she asked if they'd mind if she didn't cut it, if she could just bring it home so she could keep it for a while to savor the moment. So Agnes left, carrying her cake like a treasure. Tony led the guests in a prayer for Agnes, after which the shop owner told Tony he didn't realize that he was a preacher. He asked Tony what kind of church he came from. And Tony replied, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) The shop owner couldn't believe him. No, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Yeah, I'd even join a church like that. What's it look like to go everywhere in every place with the gospel? Looks like us moving out of what's safe and normal and having eyes that are open to what God's doing. Now, let me just say a couple things to you because there's some of you that are sitting here and you're saying, I I am not the kind of person who could throw a birthday party for a prostitute at 3.30 in the morning. Like, I'm just not wired like that. Like, I'm, I'm not the kind of personality that can sit across the table from a Luciferian and have a conversation. Like, great for Jonas, I, that's just not me. Can I say to you, God has given you your personality on purpose. He did not make a mistake. He loves you just like you are, and you are sent. Even if you're shy and quiet, that means that you will listen far better than Jonas ever listens, right? Like, <laughs> Uh, so here's the deal. People who talk too much wish they talked less. If you don't know how I know that, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> like, we all do. And people who don't talk enough wish they talked more. It's almost like we have an enemy who's constantly telling us we're not good enough, so we shouldn't go out and step into what God's called us to do. God created you like you are, and he wants to use you like you are. And it may not be for a birthday party for a prostitute at 3.30 in the morning or dinner with a, a, a Luciferian, but it will be a slow relationship with your neighbor who desperately needs to encounter Jesus or a coworker who needs somebody just to listen. And it might be for some of you the same person over and over again for months and years as that relationship deepens, and that's wonderful. It takes all of us who are all wired differently. So, so immediately in your brain, shut down those excuses that say, I'm not like that. God made you and empowered you and sends you, however you are. The other thing is this. We have to be people who are praying for and having eyes open to the opportunities that are in front of us. Some of you know Joyce Hildren Fritz. Joyce has led more people to Jesus than most of us have talked to over the course of our lives. And, and Joyce, for the last almost 50 years, has begun every single day praying, God, would you open my eyes to the divine appointments that are in front of me today? Those are not magic words, but I bet Joyce sees them better than all of us do because she's asking God for it every single day. She's saying, God, open my eyes. She's not doing anything magical. She's just saying, God, like, would you help me to see the things you're doing? And if we ask him to do that, he will put people in front of us. 
And the last thing is this. It's got to be all of us. If it's three or four people who are going out and seeking to embody the gospel in all places everywhere, they're going to get worn out and they're going to be discouraged and all the rest of us are going to sit back and watch them and say, see, I knew it wouldn't work anyway. But if we all step into it, we encourage one another, we spur one another on, this becomes a place where we, we, we come together and we get filled back up so we can go back out. This becomes a launching place instead of a destination point. And, and this becomes a place where we together share the stories of how the, the shy and the quiet person engaged this person and how the outgoing person actually listened for once and how we all like started to engage. See, we, we, we start to go out and do it. So it's got to be all of us that we together as the body of Christ go out. And so I, I want us to respond in a very specific way today. A, as we come to the communion table, there are so many different layers to what the communion meal is. Certainly at the center is the fact that Jesus died for our sins. That his body was sacrificed, his blood poured out in order that we would have life in him. But there are all these other layers and one of my favorite layers to communion is the fact that you and I are going to go in just a minute and we're going to receive the body and the blood of Jesus into our bodies. And then we're going to sing a song and we're all going to leave. And Jesus goes with you. Like we take him out with us in our bodies in this beautiful symbolic way. We leave here and we go into our neighborhoods and we go into our communities. We go into our workplaces and, and we take him along with us. And so as we come, we receive and then we go and we serve. And so as we come to the table, I want to invite you to consider, yes, that you're a sinner in need of grace, that we are equally broken and identified by the cross, and that we are sent out, empowered by God, who all authority in heaven and on earth has centered in him, and now he's given it to us through the Spirit, and we are out, sent into every nook and cranny in the world to receive him. And so I'm going to invite you to come. If you're serving, I'm going to ask you to move to the stations, uh, two at the front and one in the back. The worship team is going to come and lead us as well. And the invitation is for all who are followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you trust him for, as Lord of your life, I'm going to invite you to come to one of these tables to receive from him. As you do, can I ask you to wear a mask as you're coming to the tables, to receive the bread into your hands, to take a cup, and then as you move away, to pull down the mask, to eat and to drink and to remember. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me say a couple things. First of all, I'm going to ask you not to come to the communion table. And the short, the short story for that is really simple. This is a meal that declares Jesus is Lord. And if you're not ready to declare Jesus is Lord this would be a, a silly thing for you to engage. It doesn't make any sense. But there are some prayers that will be on the screen and they'll kind of help you search. And so if you're at that place where you're saying, I just want to know what's true, the prayers that'll be on the screen may help you. The other thing is this, you're invited and there's nothing that you need to do. You don't need to go home and fix anything first. You don't need to like come and get yourself prepared. You're invited right as you are. The God whom has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth doesn't need you to work to get yourself ready. He can handle it. And so just come. The second prayer that will be on the screen is a prayer that says, Jesus, I want to follow you. 
And if you want to pray that prayer, those words that are there are just there to help you. They're not magic words, but they just kind of give a structure to your prayer. I want to invite you to do that, to pray, to ask Jesus to, to be your Lord, that you would begin to follow after him. If you pray that prayer, let me simply ask you one thing. Would you tell somebody about it? Because just like going out is something that we all need to do together, following Jesus is something we all need to do together. And so we would love to do that with you and invite you to do that with us. And so if you pray that prayer, we would love to know. The last thing I want to say before we come to the table is if you come today and you're a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life that you have just shut him off from. Not that you're wrestling because we're all imperfect, but you said, you can have the 90%, but this 10% is mine. I'm not giving you this. I would also ask you not to come to the table, and the reason is really simple. Um, it's important to do first things first. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you come to the altar with your sacrifice and find that you have something against your brother or sister, leave your sacrifice and go restore the relationship with your, your brother or sister. Which is kind of funny because if you know anything about animals, they're probably not hanging out for you when you get back, right? Like that, he's basically saying the sacrifice is far less important than this relationship is. And that same thing is true. If there's an aspect of your life that's not devoted to him, this is an opportunity for you to, to get that taken care of. Far more important than just going to this remembrance right now. But for all of us who are seeking to follow him, imperfectly and in broken ways, seeking to follow him, this is a reminder that he's given himself for us and that he goes with us as we go. So I want to pray for you, and then as you're ready, I want to invite you to go and to receive, to remember. Jesus, I thank you for your word to us and your love for us. I thank you for the grace that beckons us to the table and to the cross. Jesus, would you meet us? And as we go out from here, would you give us the grace to bring you, your spirit, your power, your love, your grace, your mercy, to every place that we go, to all in all, that you would, by your glory, fill all in all, every nook and cranny for your glory. And so Jesus, meet us and then send us by your grace, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. As you're ready, come to the table.